The Lord, the Spirit, is the Spirit of grace. The better promises that accompany the New Covenant include not only what we're studying of late, I will put my laws into their mind, and upon their hearts I will inscribe them, but also the promise found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, which I refer to frequently, that the God of Israel will give into the new covenant community a people with a new heart and a new spirit, his own spirit. I will give into them a new spirit or my spirit, my own spirit, and cause them, that's us, to fulfill his laws and commands, the sum of those commands being love. It's the spirit who is the focus of this promise. It's the Lord's Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit, as Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 3, 17. The Lord, and it's Paul who interprets this to be this way, the Lord to whom Moses turned while he removed the veil over his face in Exodus 34, 34, is the Lord, the Spirit. According to Paul, and again that's 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. To call the Spirit the Lord the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3, 18 is to emphasize the authority of the Spirit. Kurios is Lord. The Lord the Spirit. I'll say that again to call the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, the Lord the Spirit is to emphasize the authority of the Spirit. And in increment 265, our last increment, this is 266, I emphasized a new adjective, at least for us, it's really an old one, to describe the Spirit, and that is hegemonic. Hegemonic, the hegemonic Spirit. This is intensely accurate is a description for the Holy Spirit, for we must not allow the demonic to be hegemonic, but the Lord, the Spirit, to be hegemonic. Hegemonic is from the word hegemon, which we use to mean something to do with government or governor. And so the Holy Spirit is properly called the hegemonic spirit. In fact, where I get this is from a passage of scripture, Psalm 51:12, which is the Septuagint, Psalm 50, verse 14. The adjective hegemonic is entirely appropriate in describing the Holy Spirit because in that passage, Isaiah, or make that Psalm 51:12, Septuagint, Greek, L- LXX or the Septuagint 5014, the spirit is called Pneumati, that's spirit, Pneumati, and then we have an adjective following Pneumati, which is H E G E M O N I K O S. And 
that would translate, look how this goes into the English transliteration, H-E-G-E-M-O-N, hegemon ikos, hegemonikos, the pneumatos, or pneumati hegemonikos. So hegemonikos means authoritative or leading. When we think of the verb hegeomai, which is a, a word that describes thinking, it's a thinking that is led by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit making clear the scriptures. This is the secret not only to psychological health, but to spiritual well-being and spiritual health. So the adjective hegemonic is entirely appropriate in describing the Holy Spirit because of this, its actual use in the Greek. Hegemonikos means authoritative or leading. It can be compared with the Lord in Exodus 34, 34, who is the spirit, the Lord, the spirit, the authoritative spirit. David prayed this under profound conviction as God worked repentance into him for an egregious sin. He prayed, return to me the great joy of your salvation. He didn't say return to me your salvation. He said return to me the great joy of your salvation and strengthen me by your authoritative spirit. Your authoritative spirit, hegemonic. Your hegemonic spirit, and that word hegemonic comes from hegemon, which is the Greek noun, and also the Greek noun hegemonia, and the Greek verb hegeomai, or hegeomai. The hegemonic spirit is the Lord, the spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. This same spirit called the Lord, the spirit, in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, in connection with the new covenant. Now we're adding layer upon layer here, so be attentive. This same spirit called the Lord, the spirit, in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, the hegemonic spirit in Septuagint Psalm 50, 14, is called the Lord, the Spirit, in connection with the New Covenant, in specific connection with the New Covenant, in 2 Corinthians 3.6, then 3.18. But that same Spirit, the self-same Spirit, the identical person, is called the Spirit of Grace, charis, or cariti, in Hebrews 10.29, in connection with the Son of God and the blood of the new covenant. Rejecting the once and for all self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the termini of the ages is tantamount to insulting the spirit of grace and counting as vulgar or profane the blood of the covenant. So let me say this and make it a little more clear. The Lord, the Spirit, also known as the hegemonic spirit, the authoritative spirit, 
in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is connected to the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3.6, in context. The spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29, is the same spirit as the authoritative spirit, and in Hebrews, that spirit of grace is also in intimate connection with the new covenant the blood of the covenant specifically. Hebrews 10.29, and then you can go to Hebrews 10.15 to 17, where we're going to take a look at fairly soon. So this same spirit called the Lord the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3.18 in connection with the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3.6, is called the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29 in connection with the blood of the new covenant. This, in turn, is the same spirit, the identical person, whom Yahweh, the God of Israel, calls my spirit in Ezekiel 36, 27. I will give my spirit in them. It's a strange construction, but to give the spirit indicates the word grace. The word give, doso, the future tense of didomi is used in the Septuagint translation, and it's a word that evokes the idea, in fact, the reality of grace. The governing, the point so far, then, of all this is that the governing spirit, the governing spirit, or the supremely authoritative spirit, the Lord the Spirit in the New Covenant community, is the spirit of grace. Consequently, in the spirit, there is the hegemony, or the hegemony is how you'd pronounce it, H-E-G-E-M-O-N-Y, or the government of grace. Because the spirit is the authoritative spirit and the same spirit is the spirit of grace, then the authority of the spirit is the authority of grace, the reign of grace, the kingdom of grace, the hegemony of grace. So in the spirit, there is the hegemony or the government of grace. We could call it the reign, R-E-I-G-N, of grace. In fact, Paul calls it that in Romans 5.20, which we'll look at in a moment. It's called the reign of grace. By grace we are saved through the faithfulness of Christ, and by grace we are led by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. As many as are the sons and daughters of God are led by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18. By walking in the Spirit or conducting our lives in the Spirit, as the New Covenant community does, the lusts of the flesh are not being fulfilled. They're squelched or extinguished in Galatians 5.16. But the love of God that which God's law requires, Galatians 5.14 and Romans 8.4, is being produced in us by the Holy Spirit. And that, in turn, fulfills the laws that are written on our mind and the commandments of God that are inscribed upon our hearts, 
the sum total of which is the requirement of love. By walking in the Spirit, then, the lusts of the flesh are not being fulfilled, but the love of God, which is God's law, is being produced. The love of God is poured out throughout our hearts by the Spirit, Romans 5.5, 5. and this love is produced as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. This is all the doing of the hegemonic Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit. This is the year of the Lord, the Spirit, because this is the year when the hegemony of the Holy Spirit must be foremost. And when the Holy Spirit is hegemonic, the hegemony of the demonic is eradicated. People are saved instead of perishing. This love is the love of Christ that we discussed in our last increment. This is all the doing, again, of the Lord, the Spirit, the hegemonic Spirit, who is also the Spirit of grace. Please, let's reduce it down to something even simpler. The Lord, the Spirit, is the Spirit of grace. The hegemonic spirit, the authoritative spirit, is the spirit of grace. Therefore, the government that the Holy Spirit governs over is grace. It's always grace. The spirit whose voice we are to hear and heed today, Hebrews 3.7, Hebrews 4.7, and seven times in the book of Revelation, be careful to hear and heed what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Spirit, whose voice we are to hear and heed today, if you hear his voice, with whom we are companions, Hebrews 6.5, who makes the scriptures clear, in Hebrews 9.8, through whom Christ offered himself to God as God's spotless lamb, the eternal spirit, Hebrews 9.14, the Holy Spirit who testifies to us, the new covenant on the level of our own time, over and over again. For after saying, now follow this carefully because we're going to Hebrews 10, the other side of the section we're in now, which is a central section of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit who testifies to us is the same as the Lord who speaks to us. And so the Lord is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit who testifies to us, the New Covenant community, over and over again, is the same as the Lord who speaks to us. For after saying, and this is Hebrews ten fifteen to 17, for after saying, the Hebrew writer says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. He then adds, I will be merciful to their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. So please notice, if you look carefully at that passage, Hebrews ten fifteen to 17, please notice that in Hebrews ten sixteen, the scripture says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, Kurios, in Hebrews 10.16. But in Hebrews 10.15 it says, and the Holy Spirit testifies, and the Holy Spirit testifies to us. Consequently, Hebrews 10.15-17 seventeen taken together and taken all in one thought, says, the Holy Spirit 
also testifies. And in the same passage, it says in 1017, the Lord says. The Holy Spirit testifying and the Lord saying is one action because the Holy Spirit is the Lord the Spirit. Do you see that the pastor teacher who wrote this book or this homily juxtaposes the Lord with the Holy Spirit? The Lord says and the Holy Spirit testifies. What's that sound like? Well, it sounds like 2 Corinthians 3.16 to 18. Like 2 Corinthians 3.16 to 18, which we're interweaving into Hebrews, Hebrews 10.15 to 16 identifies the Lord as the Lord the Spirit. The Lord the hegemonic Spirit is the Spirit of grace who glorifies the Son of God and reveals the infinite value of the new covenant of the blood of the new covenant, the blood that ratifies, establishes, and authorizes the new covenant. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace, ushers in an economy of grace, a government of grace, an immovable kingdom of grace, Hebrews 12, 28. The kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. Theologically speaking, then, what are we doing? Well, we're doing pneumatology, specifically the pneumatology of Hebrews, the study of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews. The reason that the Lord, the Spirit, is so strongly emphasized to me personally is because this year I've been strongly emphatic about and the Holy Spirit has been strongly emphatic in my life about when you study the scriptures, study them under the hegemony of the Holy Spirit, not under the hegemony of commentaries, not under the government of your own thinking, not only not on under the reign of sin, but under the reign of grace, under the hegemony of the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit lead you into all truth, guide you into all truth. Let the Holy Spirit be the governor that governs you as you study the scriptures. He's the one that makes clear the scriptures, as Hebrews 9, 8 says. He's the one who leads us guides us and governs us under the ministry of the word and who directs us in our study of the word. Only this way will the, the message that saves and the message that prevents from perishing, not only individuals but a generation, only in that way can that message come forth. So theologically speaking, what are we doing? We're doing pneumatology specifically the pneumatology of Hebrews, the study of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews. And there is a very strong pneumatology, whether it's speaking of the Spirit whose gifts and miracles testified of the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews 2.4, whether it's the Spirit who speaks to us today in Hebrews 3.7, 
whether it's the Holy Spirit who makes the word clear in Hebrews 9.8, whether it's the eternal spirit through whom the Lamb of God offered himself spotless to God in Hebrews 9.14, or whether it's the spirit who testifies to us about the value of the blood of Jesus Christ, which ratifies the new covenant in Hebrews 10.15-17. It's all very important. It's pneumatology in the book of Hebrews, the homily of Hebrews. Now, speaking of that reign or that kingdom of grace, let's consider Romans 5.21, as I suggested before. Romans 5.21 says this, just as sin reigned, that means literally reigned as king, Basiluo, so leading to death, just as sin reigned as king, leading to death, so now grace reigned reigns as king, leading to righteousness, or what God has done, God's salvific act into eternal life, Romans 5.21. For the way, and we could add Romans 5.21 should be juxtaposed with Romans 6.23. The end of Romans 5 should be juxtaposed and literally followed up by Romans 6.23, the last verse, the ultimate verse of Romans 6, for the wages that sin pays is death, but the gift that God bestows is eternal life on account of Jesus Christ our Lord. So backing these two together, backing them into one another, look at Romans 5.21 and then right next to it, Romans 6.23. Just as sin reigned leading to death, so now grace reigns leading to righteousness, or what God has done, into eternal life. For the wages that sin pays is death, but the gift that God bestows is eternal life on account of Jesus Christ our Lord. Earlier on in Romans, the Greek preposition dia, D-I-A, in Romans 4.25, where it says Jesus was raised up on account of our justification. There, one of the meanings of dia, D-I-A, is on account of. You can even find that in Gingrich's lexicon, as well as Freiburg, Thayer, Liddell Scott, and others. I don't think Liddell Scott so much, but the, one of the meanings of dia, D-I-A, is on account of. And there, in Romans 4.25, that's how it should be translated. Jesus Christ was delivered over for our sins on account of our sins, but he was raised up on account of our justification or because of our justification, meaning that our justification was won by him in his death. So resurrection answered that justification by his death as an answer. So on account of. Also, the preposition en, en, the great workhorse of Greek prepositions, having 36 meanings in the Greek New Testament, also has the meaning on account of. And we find that meaning on account of in Hebrews 13.20. But let's hang in Romans just for a second. In Romans 4.25... Dia is used where it says Jesus was raised up on account of our justification. And this can be compared with the preposition N, on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant. 
But when we speak of the blood of the everlasting covenant in conjunction with Romans 5, 9, for example, that blood is a justifying blood, the justifying act, the justifying death of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was raised up on account of our justification can be compared with the preposition N, which also can be translated as on account of, because in Hebrews 13.20 it says that God led up Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, up from the dead on account of the justifying blood of the everlasting covenant. Why can I say the justifying blood of the everlasting covenant? Because of Romans 5, 9. Being justified by his blood, all the more we are being saved by his life. And we've received the reconciliation. It goes on in 5, 10 and 5, 11. So earlier in Romans, before Romans 5, 21 and 6, 23, the Greek preposition dia in Romans 6, 25 causes the translation, Jesus was raised up or resurrected on account of our justification, and that in turn can be compared with the preposition N on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant in Hebrews 13.20. In both cases, justification was won by Jesus Christ in his death, and resurrection was an answer to that justifying act in his death. So Romans 4.25 and Hebrews 13.20 are conjoined. The God of peace brought up from the dead the Lord Jesus on account of the blood, and that's the justifying blood of the everlasting covenant. Now this chimes with Isaiah 53. Now I keep going back to justification. We did 10 messages on it in Romans and also majored on it in the first chapters of Romans because there is much confusion about and much, I would say, distortion about the doctrine of justification today in this Christian community, so-called. When we talk about justification, as we do in Romans 3.20, going back to Psalm 143.2, Septuagint 142.2, which we alluded to even in the last increment, this also chimes with Isaiah 53, 11b, which the best translations say, and I'm speaking of the Septuagint translation, reads like this. By his suffering, my righteous servant makes many righteous or justifies many. Paul interprets this verse. In fact, that's what he does in Romans 5, 18. He interprets this verse the righteous one, Romans 1.17, justifying many in Isaiah 53.11 as Christ justifying all in Romans 5.18. Many equals all in Paul's view and in Paul's interpretation. Paul interprets Isaiah 53.11, the righteous servant making many righteous or justifying many as Jesus, by his obedience to the death of the cross and the suffering that he endured on the cross, justifies all of humanity. And this is seen again, and we can't emphasize it enough or repeat it as many times as we need to. Romans 5.19 in juxtaposition with 5.18. The Septuagint, then, of Isaiah 53.11b 
alluded to also in Hebrews 9.28, is extraordinary. Again, it goes like this. And this, again, is the Septuagint. I quoted one of the best translations, but this is specifically, and let me correct this, this is specifically how the Greek text says it in the Septuagint. I gave the sense before. Now I'm giving the literal what the Greek says in the Greek text of Isaiah 53:11b. It goes like this. To justify the righteous one who is the slave of many and he himself shall bear their sins. That's the sins of many which again Paul speaks of as the sins of all. John interprets it that way too in John, 1, John 1, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So again, let me say the literal. It's a difficult rendering. It's a difficult syntactical structure. It goes like this. To justify the righteous one who is the slave of many, or we could say who is subject to many, and he himself shall bear their sins. He bears the sins of the many to whom he has become a slave. God, in divinity itself, God the Son, chose not to retain his equality with God, but put on the likeness of human flesh, of the likeness of humanity. And in that likeness as a man... He took on the form of a slave and became obedient. To whom was he a slave? If we take this back to Isaiah 53, 11, he was the willing slave of all of humanity. Because if the one who is to be greatest and who rules over all is first to be the slave of all, Jesus made himself the slave of all on the way to his becoming the Lord of all in his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Now you say you've never heard things like that before. I haven't either. I haven't said things like that before either. And this is something, one of those inarticulable things that has to become articulated as time goes by because it is the Holy Spirit's job to make things clear. Read Hebrews 9.8 sometime about that. So if we go to Jesus' own words, that's going to help us. Because in Mark 10, 43 to 44, Jesus said to his disciples who were fighting over who's the greatest among them, said, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And he used the word for deacon there, diakonos. But then he said this, and whoever wants to be the first protos among you will be the slave, not diakonos, servant, but doulos, slave of all. That's what's referred to in Isaiah 53.11 and in Philippians 2.8. Jesus himself is the one who became the slave of all, leading him to die for all, and in his death all died. But the slave of all who died in that slave mentality, in that slave activity, 
was exalted by God to be the Lord of all and the first of all and the firstborn in resurrection, the firstborn of all, the firstborn of many brethren. So if we're going to use Jesus' own words, it's always kind of wise to do that, but even in considering Jesus' own words, it is advisable to interpret them under the Lord, the Spirit. There's a lot of people quoting Jesus' words and misquoting them. The Lord, the Spirit, has to guide us in our quoting of Jesus. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant, diakonos. But whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. What was Jesus doing here? Interpreting Isaiah 53, 11, that the righteous one would be the slave of many to be the slave of all. He was saying, I'm the slave of all. As the slave of all, I will die for all. And in my resurrection, my father will exalt me to be Lord over all so that every knee will bow in genuflection. Every tongue will confess openly and worshipfully, gratefully that I am Lord to the glory of my father. Now here, I love getting to places like this in the word because what I've said today is difficult to understand. So guess what? The Lord, the Spirit has to make it clear to you. He has to convey to you a truth that's humanly difficult to articulate. When God the Son took on the form of a slave in Philippians 2.8, he was the slave of all mankind willingly, and therefore he performed an act of obedience for the benefit of all mankind, whom in essence he considered to be his betters. by an act of obedience to the extent of the death of the cross, which made the many make that all righteous. That is, he justified all of humanity. Take that in conjunction with Romans 3.20, which is a reference to the Septuagint of Psalm 143.2, which in the Septuagint is 142.2. No one alive can be justified in God's sight. So guess what? Jesus Christ died. In his death, God justified him because no one alive can be justified before God. But when he died, all died. So when Christ died and was justified, all died and were justified. And so he was raised from the dead on account of our justification. We were all justified in and by his death. Now, why do I insist on emphasizing this? Because, as was emphasized in Increment 265, where we went off the rails a little bit from notes, it is by making this judgment, which I call the judgment of USSJCUICC, which is the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of the cross of Christ, that impact being reconciling, redemptive, restorative, salvific. When we come to the judgment that Jesus Christ himself has universal saving significance, 
because he died for all and all died. It is only then when we make this judgment, when we make this determination and we come to this conviction and only when we do, that the love of Christ arrests us and holds us. And this in turn, this arresting and being held or being impelled or controlled by the love of Christ is by the Lord writing his laws in our mind. That's how there's a connection to Hebrews 8. It's by the Lord inscribing his commands and laws on our hearts, inclining us that way. Hebrews 8.10, Jeremiah 31.33, Septuagint 38.33. Moreover, by gracing us with his own indwelling hegemonic spirit, Ezekiel 36.27, we are held in the love of Christ. And we become the effective apostolate atlot on the level of our time. We become the new covenant community as ambassadors. We become the apostolate. That doesn't mean we become officially apostles like the 12 or like Paul. But it does mean that we become an apostolate sent into the world as Jesus was sent. In a divine mission enabled by the Holy Spirit to bring a ministry and a word of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.14 then, as we've seen, is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 16.14. Let all you do be done in love. When we do things that are done in love, we do things that cancel debt that people owe us, that cancel out our remembrance of trespasses and sins. When we do things that are done in love, these aren't just things done in the everyday life. These are astonishing things, surprising things, things that so surprise people that those people are converted by it. So surprise our enemies that we win our enemies and make them be at peace with us. That's what this love does. That's how powerful it is. It's transformative. And this let everything be in love, literally, in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, has to do with what we used to call and still do call, from Lonergan's teachings, transcendent precept number five, be in love. It's the highest precept of the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus, led by the Lord, the hegemonic spirit. Higher integration of human living is in Christ Jesus exclusively, and it is led exclusively by the hegemonic spirit. So we're considering not only the identity of the Lord the Spirit as the spirit of grace, but we're also considering the intimate association of the Lord the Spirit, also known as the spirit of grace, with the new covenant and the new covenant community. The new covenant, as we're learning and we're still really hunkered down in Hebrews 8, 8b through 12. We're kind of bivouacked there. The new covenant is said to be not like the old covenant. The Lord said that himself in Jeremiah. Not like the covenant I made with your ancestors. The new covenant is not like the old because the new one is guaranteed of a successful fulfillment 
Listen carefully to this. It's almost a thesis. The new covenant is not like the old because the new one is guaranteed of a successful fulfillment because both sides of that covenant are divine. Or let's better say it this way. One side of the covenant is divine and the other is divine human. Whereas the old covenant was rendered weak as was the entirety of the law because of the flesh, the inherently weak humanity which is susceptible to control by the capital F-L-E-S-H, flesh, by sin and by death or at least the fear of death. The covenant that the Lord covenants, and he uses the both the noun and the verb on purpose to emphasize covenant. The covenant that the Lord covenants with the house of Israel and the house of Judah is not just for those houses, but for the whole of humanity. It is a covenant covenanted by God. The noun covenant and the verb covenant in one breath indicates that the Lord is at both sides of the new covenant. The placing of the laws of God into the mind of the new covenant community, mind singular, is in essence the placing of the mind of Christ in them, us. The inscription of God's laws into the hearts of the new covenant community, including us, is in essence the pouring out of the love of God in the hearts of the new covenant community, causing them, us, to do the commandments of Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself, where neighbors also includes enemies and in the whole world of humanity. The installment, I'll call it that, of the laws of God into the mind of the new covenant community is in essence the installment in the apostolic church of the mind of Christ. And when we speak of the mind of Christ, we don't just mean his thoughts. We mean his intentionality, disposition, attitude, and inclination toward obedience to the Father. So the installment of the laws of God into the mind of the New Covenant community, according to the New Covenant promise in Jeremiah, is in essence the installment in the apostolic church of the mind into the mind of the new covenant community is the mind of Christ installed in us, for we have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We are to let that mind be in us in Philippians 2.5 and to be armed with that mind in 1 Peter 4.1. The inscription of God's laws on our hearts amounts to the control of our hearts with the love of Christ. I'll say that again, the inscription of God's laws on the hearts of the new covenant community amounts to the control of our hearts with the love of Christ or by the love of Christ. The new covenant community is defined by that love. That is the seventh and most important affirmation of Tetelestai Phalanx because it is an apostolic affirmation made by Paul and that's found in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ constrains us or controls us or arrests and holds us, motivates us and impels us, is the driving force that moves our advance forward in a world that's perishing. 
Now, we're going to see down the road, I hope, it's my prayer and my hope that we're going to see 2 Corinthians 5.14 in the context of what I call a micro-apocalypse or what Bulgakov called a micro-apocalypse. And I find a micro-apocalypse in 2 Corinthians 5.14 through 21. That's the great apocalypse with which we are faced in 2023 and following and in a time in which the New Covenant community on the level of our time makes its advance in a perishing world. So, this is all coming up. But for now, I want to consider that the New Covenant community is defined most notably by that love, the love of Christ. That's the love of Christ in a genitive formation, a genitive phrase, and the genitive phrase there isn't objective genitive where it talks about our love for Christ. It isn't subjective genitive only, which talks about Christ's love for us. It is the subjective genitive of Christ's love for us and the objective genitive of our love for Christ, but the scales tip much more strongly toward the subjective genitive. It's the love of Christ in us that arrests us and holds us and that causes the reciprocation of that love from us to Christ and from us to God and from us to all the world. So it is called properly a comprehensive genitive. It is called a simultaneous genitive. It is also called a plenary genitive. And as I mentioned Sunday, one of the last questions I asked one of my former teachers and mentors, human mentors, Colonel Theme, is when I said to him, when we see this phrase, the love of God or the love of Christ in the New Testament, does it always appear in the plenary genitive? And he answered with one word and said, yes. Well, I took off on that for sure. The New Covenant community then is defined by the love of Christ. The New Covenant community advances in vertical finality toward the beatific vision with faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these being love, namely the love of Christ, especially as it controls us. Now, Thomas Aquinas had a word for the virtues that we call faith, hope, and love. He called them theological virtues, and for good reason. The theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. Theological, because, as my friend and co-laborer Emery Persinger said, they are God's virtues. They are the virtues of God, faith, hope, and love. In 2 Corinthians, the order of this trio is, in appearance is not like the order of appearance in 1 Corinthians, faith, hope, and love. In 2 Corinthians, their order of appearance is hope, faith, and love. The emphasis falls on hope. And this is appropriate because, as Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the reality or, subjectively, the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is also the conviction of unseen things, all in Hebrews 11, that definition. Correlating with 2 Corinthians 4.18, and we are creatively interweaving two core with Hebrews, faith is that by which we focus not on things or phenomena that are seen, but on things or phenomena that are not seen. 
For the things which are seen are evanescent, but the things which are not seen are everlasting. What is everlasting, and it's faith that sees the everlasting. Faith sees the radical everlasting change, the permanent change of situation that occurred when God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. We do not see with sight or empiricism. We do not see by human observation or natural means of perception this change of situation in the human race. This has to be perceived entirely by faith. We do not have the assurance of the hope for radical change of the condition of all of humanity through resurrection and the change of all the universe through the elimination of entropy from the universe that occurs at the appearance of Jesus Christ. We don't see that, but we have that as an assurance of things hoped for. So in between the time of the radical change of situation that happened in Christ in the cross and the radical change of the universal and human condition that comes in his parousia, we must walk by faith and not by sight, not looking at the things which are seen, but things which are not seen, because the things that are not seen are everlasting, and they have everlasting value or an everlasting weight of value, as Second Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 puts it. If you determine weight by the analogy, or, or if you determine value by the analogy of weight, such as a ton of gold is worth much more than an ounce of gold. Well, the weight of glory far exceeds the weight of our present afflictions. We look at the things which are everlasting because their weight is far more valuable. So then, what is everlasting that we look to with faith is both, both the radical and permanent everlasting change of situation of all humanity and all creation which occurred in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And the inevitable eschatological, universal, permanent, radical, salvific change of the human and creational condition, which is the product of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal saving impact of the cross of Christ, that is about to occur at the second appearance of our great archpriest, is things hoped for. Things not seen, the radical change of situation. Things hoped for, the radical change of the human and creational condition. We're in the time between, and faith lays hold of both the change of situation that occurred in Christ, not seen but everlasting, and faith lays hold of the things hoped for, which is the change of the universal condition and universal human condition and creational condition to the infinite better, which is a thing hoped for. Faith is an infinitely precious value for us in this age, in this time in between. Blessed are those who believe. Fear not, only believe. And so, in this time in between, the two great alterations in which we live, we conduct our lives or walk by faith and not by sight. Only by faith do we perceive these changes, these alterations. For the time being, unseen and hoped for phenomena are laid hold of and observable only by faith and not by sight. 
Sight there in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 encompasses all means of human perception that are positivistic, which means I'll believe it when I see it, merely empirical, known by the natural senses, including visual, auditory, tactile, or even scientific and technological. Now, the love of Christ that arrests and hold us, holds us goes with a faith that sees and a hope that is firm. The word firm here is something I want to end on because it has to do with something that's lasting, something that's everlasting, something that has lasting value. And it's the word bebaios, B-E-B-A-I-O-S, bebaios. Bebaios means firm or secure. It's used in our first affirmation of Tetelestai Phalanx, where it says our hope is firm. More specifically, our hope for you is firm, says the apostolic missionaries of the community of Christians. It's used once, this word bebaios, is used once in Romans, namely in 4.16, where the promised Abraham is firm or we could say, guaranteed to all the descendants of Abraham, which is all his seed, which is Christ in Galatians 3.16, in whom all the nations are to be blessed, in whom all of humanity is to be the people of God and in whom God is to be their God. Hebrews 8.10, Jeremiah 31.33, Septuagint 38.33, Jeremiah 32, 38, Septuagint 39, 38, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Revelation 21, 3 alluded to. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God speaks of justification, God our righteousness. They will be my people speaks of sanctification, Christ our sanctification. The promise of blessedness is secure, in other words, bebaios, firm, to all the seed. And that's singular seed in Galatians 3.16, but it's also the collective seed of all the nations, all of humanity in Christ. Blessedness of justification and life is for all the human race. It's a firm reality, a guaranteed reality. The word babias is used in 2 Peter in 1.10 regarding your calling and election, which is say, said to be made firm or secure, that is subjectively firm or secure. That means secure to you, firm to you, securing to you in your own mind through the participation in the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4 and through divine production of virtue in 1 Peter 1.5-7. Beginning with faith, 2 Peter 1.5, a theological virtue and ending with love a theological virtue, agape, in 2 Peter 1.7. While in between there is the theological virtue of hope, not specifically named, but described in the form of endurance or perseverance, which is an attribute of hope in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, the perseverance of hope. In 2 Peter 1.19, bebaios, B-E-B-A-I-O-S, is deployed comparatively, and it's the word bebaioteron. You'll see all this in print. Bebaioteron, made more secure. 
to describe the prophetic word made more secure by the eyewitness account of Peter and the two other witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration. The prophetic word about the coming of Christ in both of his advents was made more secure by the Mount of Transfiguration vision that Peter, James, and John saw. Does that mean that the prophetic word needed to be made more objectively secure than it already was? No. But the Mount of Transfiguration experience made the prophetic word that predicted the coming of Christ more secure to Peter, to James, and to John. It secures that prophetic reality, that prophetic word, more securely with us, the bias. And so this does not refer to the making of the prophetic word more objectively secure, but more subjectively secure and securely assured to Peter, James, and John and to all who receive their witness. That includes us. Bibaios makes four appearances in Hebrews. First in 2.2, speaking of the word that came through angels, the old covenant. So how much more? The great salvation that's brought with the new covenant. Second, it appears in 3.14 of Hebrews where it describes our hold, our grasp on the reality that the readers of Hebrews had at the start and that we have. It refers in essence to a firm hold on the substance of things hoped for. And it correlates nicely with 2 Corinthians 1.7, Paul's apostolic hope for the Corinthian saints. It is found third in Hebrews 6.19, as we emphasized earlier in H2020, which is Hebrews 20.20, H2020, describing, of all things, hope, which is both an anchor for the soul and Jesus himself in the region beyond the veil in heaven as our forerunner. Fourth, and finally, Bibios appears in Hebrews 9.17, where a will and testament, is said to be in effect or valid only when, pe when people die or when the testator dies. This is the only time in all the scripture where the new covenant is analogous to a will and testament, and that does not make the new covenant a new testament, but the analogy is a powerful means of emphasizing the necessity of the death of Jesus for the new covenant and of equating his death which his blood with his blood which authorizes the new covenant. Now, this is going to be a particularly long message for a Wednesday, but I'm going to conclude this way. The sole and singular use of bibios in 2 Corinthians is 1.7, where again Paul says, our hope for you is firm. It's followed by this context in 2 Corinthians 1.8, and we are intervening inter weaving 2 Corinthians with Hebrews, so I'll do this. My translation, 2 Corinthians 1.8. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning our tribulation, which took place in Asia, probably when, Paul, when Paul's friends were attacked by a mob of worshipers of Ishtar in Ephesus. For we were burdened beyond our ability so that we despaired even of life. If you in any way step against or sin and transgress against Ishtar, 
which is the extreme radical feminism of idolatry, not the kind of feminism that people tout today necessarily, except the radical fringe do. It is in the mythology of Ishtar, whatever name she has, Ashtoreth or whatever name she holds, to tear apart the people who violate or in any way blaspheme her. And so Paul's friends were being virtually about to be torn apart by animalistic people who thought that they violated Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis or Ishtar, whatever name she goes by, so they were about to tear them apart, tear them to pieces. See a lot of that today. And we'll see more of it in the future, and some of it will be literal and is literal in the forest glens of our nation. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning our tribulation which took place in Asia, for we were burdened beyond our ability so that we despaired even of life. In fact, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not be confident in ourselves, but in God who resurrects the dead. In other words, we thought we'd had it to the point where let's just look for resurrection. He rescued us from such a great death, however, a circumstance where death was the inevitable outcome by sight, and he will rescue us. We have confidence that he will yet rescue us. Why did Paul say that? Because we, he said, and I include us, the New Covenant community of Atlat on the level of our time, we carry about the dying of Jesus in our mortal bodies, and we're always being delivered to death for his sake so that the very resurrection life of Jesus will be manifested in our mortal bodies. That's 2 Cor 4, 10 and 11. This is the apostolic legacy that we have. For in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul had written to the church of God at Corinth and he wrote these words. For I think God, in verse 9 through 12, for I think God displayed us apostles last even though apostles are first in the list in Ephesians 4.11, he has displayed apostles last as condemned to die, that is, in the arena of contention. For we've become a theater spectacle to the world, cosmo, and to angels and to men, the objects of God's salvation in Christ. Verse 10, we've become fools for the sake of the Messiah, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, you're strong, you're honored, we're despised. Up to this very hour, we're hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, abused, and homeless. That's the apostolic legacy there. And in verse 12, he says, we struggle, and we have to work with our own hands. Though reviled, we respond by blessing. Being persecuted, we simply endure. Slandered, we keep appealing. That means appealing be reconciled to God in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Having become the world's scapegoats, the scum of all things up to now. So I'll close by saying this. The move to scapegoat Christians is underway in this country and is more ardently in other countries. If we're going to act like apostles, we'll be treated like the apostles. All who will live godly will suffer persecution, 2 Corinthians 3.12, especially in times like these that resemble the description of society in 2 Timothy 3.1-9 and 2 Timothy 3.13. The chief apostolic affirmation and affirmation 
Number seven of Tetelestai Phalanx is the love of Christ controls us. This is what arrests and holds us, even in times of persecution, even when we are viewed as the scum of the earth, and even when, we're re when we are viewed as the cause of civilization's ills. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.